Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. As we continue the series, we began a few weeks ago studying this gospel. First few weeks, we looked at these passages. We looked at the prologue and the three different themes that were woven, not only there that were revealed there, but that are woven throughout the entirety of this book and through that powerful poetry that John gives to us that's worth just continual reflection and meditation. Uh, we begin to see the, the glory of Jesus Christ. Last week, Camper began the narrative part, which is the bulk of this book, and introducing us to John the Baptist. And this morning, we continue with the narrative as we look to that time when Jesus called the first disciples to be his followers. We find that in John chapter 1, and beginning our reading in verse 35, continuing through verse 51. Hear the word of God. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so... You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida and the city, the city of Andrew and, and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The word of our Lord. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our Father and God, we come to worship you. And we now turn our attention to your word as an act of worship. For we know that it is you who have spoken and that this word does not come back empty. And so our attention given to it, our listening for your voice is our act of worship. And yet we pray to you that in accordance with your promise, that even as we consider your word, that you would speak to us. You would enlighten our minds and as well as our hearts 
that we might understand, gain wisdom, direction, and most of all, that we would see Jesus more clearly, for in him we see you and we know you. Bless us with this gift, even as we seek to offer you the gift of our worship, which you are worthy to receive. We pray for the glory of your name in the person of Jesus, who is the word incarnated to this world. Amen. Every spring since 1976, when the Pittsburgh Steelers drafted an unknown wide receiver from the University of Dayton named Kelvin Kirk, with the 487th and final pick of the NFL draft, the last player selected each year has been given a dubious distinction, being named Mr. Irrelevant. He's considered irrelevant because by that time in the draft, by the time the last person is picked, it's quite unlikely that the guy is ever going to even make a team, much less help a team to win any games. And so 1976 is sort of a, a farcical thing, and to give some honor to a guy who probably was not going to be playing football for a living, uh, they thought they would give an award that was intended to be a one-time thing, but it was so popular that they decided they would do it again and again, and it's evolved into a celebration ever since 1976. Mr. Irrelevant, the last person chosen in the NFL draft, within a few weeks of the draft, is flown to Orange County, California, where he will receive his rewards and the celebration. The first day that he is there, he is a, a VIP, and with VIP treatment at Disneyland. On the second day, he is the one who launches a regatta, which is held in his honor. And to cap the week off on the third day, he's the grand marshal of a parade that is held in his honor. Mr. Irrelevant is now something that is celebrated, even if nobody knows who he is. And you might say, well, that's interesting, but so what? Well, I share that because it's really an interesting and really a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God in, in its own quirky way. Because the kingdom of God is the ultimate upside-down kingdom where whoever is last is first. Whoever is the least is the one who is going to be greatest. And so the Mr. Irrelevant is an interesting perspective for that. But the title Mr. Irrelevant is also appropriate for us, or at least for many of us, because many of us struggle with our own sense of relevance or our irrelevance in our communities, in our churches, in our workplaces, and certainly as we look at the problems of this world and feeling incapable irrelevant to being able to have any impact into resolving them. Francis Schaeffer picked up on this in speaking to some of the sense of inadequacy that most people feel at some time and at some points of their lives, and he writes this, nowhere more than in America are Christians caught in the syndrome of size. Size will show success. If I'm consecrated, there will necessarily be large quantities of people, dollars, etc. But this is not so. Not only does, not, does God not say that size and spiritual power go together, but he even reverses this, especially in the teaching of Jesus. And he tells us to be deliberately careful not to choose a place too big for us. We all tend to emphasize big works and big places but all such emphasis is of the flesh. To think in such terms is simply to hearken back to the old, unconverted, egoist, self-centered me. This attitude taken from the world is more dangerous to the Christian than fleshly amusement or practice. It's of the flesh. 
Lewis is touching on an experience that many of us have, many of us feel uh, at some point in our lives, if not continual within our lives, of we are just insignificant, irrelevant, incapable of making any differences. Some of us find it difficult enough to manage our own lives, much less make a difference in our community and in the world. Those kinds of things are left for significant people, powerful people, big people, important people. And yet that mindset, as Schaefer reminds us, is counter what the Bible teaches us. Schaefer writes this in a book that he titled there are, are no little people, and the Bible teaches us, and this passage before us today really is summed up in that statement because there are no little people in the kingdom of God. And the passage we have before us this morning is the introduction of the first followers of Jesus Christ. These are the first ones that Jesus called to be his followers. And as we look at this passage, really the two primary things that we see I would say we could outline this way is to saying that God does extraordinary, extraordinary things through ordinary people or in ordinary people. And God does extraordinary things through ordinary people. Now, if we consider that God does extraordinary things in ordinary people, all we need to do is look at the cast of characters, look at the roster of the people that we see introduced to us in this particular passage. They were all quite common. We see the first two that come. There were two disciples we see here in verse 37. Two disciples heard what John the Baptist said. Now, I'll back up for a second. John the Baptist qualifies as an extraordinary person. He's one of the only people, well, the only one we have recorded in Scripture, that had the Holy Spirit indwelling him even before birth. But the reason that that's recorded is because that makes him extraordinary. That's not normal. He was not a normal guy. As Camper pointed out, he wasn't normal with his diet, eating locusts and honey. He wasn't normal with his dress. He wasn't normal in any way, and he wasn't normal even in a spiritual sense. God had set him apart as somebody who was unusual. And yet, through that unusual, extraordinary man who points to Jesus, Jesus then calls us as followers incredibly ordinary people. And in verse 37, the two of the people that were following John, we read, then John pointed out Jesus is the, the Lamb of God, and they began to follow. One of them, we're told, is is Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. The fact that John even records that second part indicates somewhat of what we should know about Andrew. We don't even find Andrew much in the scriptures, but whenever we do, he's often in the shadow of his brother. So the whole point of introducing him is, hey, this is Andrew, he's so-and-so's brother. He's not even Andrew on his own merit. That's his significance. We know of Andrew, he and his brother were partners, uh, had partnership in a fishing business. And so Andrew was just a good, hardworking, normal guy who wanted to see what God was doing and pursued that. We see the first thing that Andrew did was to go to his brother Peter, and he said, we found the Messiah, Peter. And while we see greatness in Peter later on, particularly in the book of Acts and unfolding uh, in his life, Peter just happened to be the more gregarious older brother of Andrew, who was a blue-collar fisherman, respectable, hardworking, made a decent living, obviously was interested in spiritual things, but nothing extraordinary about him. The same is true for John. 
who if you look at this passage, it's interesting because you don't even find him listed, at least not if you read it, except that he's there. You see, we're told that there are two disciples that were following John the Baptist who heard him point out that behold the Lamb of God. One of whom, we're told, is Andrew. The other one, we're never told who it is. And the reality is, is that it was John himself, and this is a pattern that we see through, of him through all of Scripture. He never, in his own writings, refers to himself. He never talks about himself. He's never the focal point of anything. And so here, he acknowledges his presence, but he doesn't even mention that he was the one present. And even later in this book, when John refers to himself, just, he refers to himself as simply one whom Jesus loved. So it would be very easy to mistake John's significance based on what he became and the influence that he continues to have because of his writing. But we need to look at John through his own eyes. And he didn't consider himself to be anything of great significance. And when he refers to himself as one whom Jesus loves, while it may sound arrogant at first glance, John really says that my identity is so wrapped up in the fact that I am nobody of great significance and Jesus loves me that who I am is nothing as compared to the fact that God loves me in the person of Jesus Christ. And he happened to be one of the partners of Andrew and Peter in the fishing business. So again, another blue-collar, hard-working guy who was seeking after God. We meet Philip, and we don't know a whole lot about Philip. One of the things that we see about Philip here is that Philip is the only one of these disciples that doesn't have a Hebrew name. Now, it's quite possible that he had one, but he's the only one he clearly didn't go by that. He was known simply as Philip, which was a Greek name. Now, chances are that he was Jewish, and so he would have been known as a Hellenist, people who have Greek ancestry, Greek culture, although believed the same truth of the promises of God that all of the Jews would believe. But that's about the only thing that we really know, although some scholars have picked up on a couple of things that none of us would probably want known, at least to be remembered by because one scholar, a man named Leon Morris, tells us this. Each time we meet Philip, he seems to be out of his depths. Another scholar writes this. Philip was apparently a rather stupid man. To which Morris goes on and replies, we don't understand what John is telling us if we see Philip as some, spir some spiritual supergiant. How'd you like that as your legacy? That God chooses to record for all time, this is what we know about you. Uh, you're a dope. Hardly impressive. And then we meet Nathaniel, who has an interesting conversion story because Philip goes to him and, and, and says, hey, we found the one who Moses and the prophets had talked about. And Nathaniel apparently had some biblical understanding. He'd been to Bible school at least because otherwise there would be no point in appealing to the ones that Moses and the prophets talked about. But we don't get the impression that he was particularly aggressive in his pursuit of his faith because he was found laying under a fig tree taking a siesta, thought, okay, well, that's interesting. And his first response to this incredible proclamation is to be snarky. Can anything good come from, it's, you know, the, we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And so the, the irony in this is that Nathaniel's from some little hick town, and he's making fun of somebody else from another hick town. And apparently their high school football teams were rivals or something, because can anything good come out of Nazareth? And another thing that's interesting is that Nathaniel's not mentioned anywhere else in the list of the disciples. Now, it's quite likely that he actually is Bartholomew, 
And so that he had two different names. And so when you see the list of the disciples, because one of the reasons Bartholomew is almost always listed in a company with Philip, and so that would, their friendship. But again, no great significance here. There's a lot of humor and the ordinariness. Nathaniel perhaps being one of the most uh, intriguing ones, because I love the dialogue that, that takes place. Because when Nathaniel comes to Jesus, Jesus seeing him coming, says, ah, there is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel's response was kind of like this. Oh, you've heard of me. I mean, it's, you know, you know my reputation. And then Jesus explains to him how he has seen him, which leads to belief. There's other significance that's attached to Nathaniel here that we see that we won't have time to go into but particularly when Jesus is making the reference to an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's a reference back to Jacob, who became Israel, and yet whose whole character was deceit. And so there was a promise of what was going to happen in the disciples is the true Israel, in whom ultimately the truth will reside rather than in deceit. And we see that even picked up upon later on in verse 51, the last uh, verse that we have in this chapter, when Jesus makes reference to when they will see even greater things, they'll see heaven opened up and angels coming up and down. That's a clear reference to Jacob's dream. And so these are extraordinary things that happen in these guys, but they are incredibly ordinary people. And part of the extraordinary thing that happens is not what's necessarily recorded here, but what is recorded in all of Scripture that is true for all who are the followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus called them, they became followers of Jesus Christ. So if that's a sociopolitical statement, then big deal. But Jesus says that those who believed in him, those who trusted him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. There's a transformation. They became new creations. And while Jesus doesn't say that here, we need to read Scripture with all of Scripture. And so these guys who were quite ordinary, the ones that Jesus called that he was going to change the entire world with, were quite ordinary people in whom he did an amazing work of salvation, regenera regeneration, salvation, and transformation. And the transformation here is reflected in the conversation that Peter had, with, uh, that Jesus had with Peter. Because when Peter comes, Jesus said, so, you're, you're Simon. Otherwise, if we put it in English, so you're Sandy. It's kind of sand, shifty is the, the name Something's shifting unstable. I'm going to call you Cephas, Aramaic for rock. Peter is Greek for rock. Jesus looked at him as he's coming. The first thing that he sees in him, an indication of the transformation that was going to take place in this guy, is reflected in the change of name. You're no longer going to be named Sandy. I'm going to call you Rocky. I mean, just totally different images in that, but they are a reflection of the transformation that was going to take place in Peter. And G Peter is representative of the transformation that takes place in all who are followers of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is not Mr. Rogers. I like you just the way you are. He does love you just the way you are, but he also loves you enough not to leave you that way. And he promises to all that come to him that he will bring transformation. And transformation, in many ways, is radical to the core and becomes evidence in their lives, even to the point that the entire image and your entire name would be appropriately changed. This is God's promise. We see God making the promise that he will be at work within his people. Some of you may have read Irving Stone's book, The Agony and the Ecstasy, or maybe you've seen the movie. It's Stone's fictional biography of Michelangelo, and in the book he 
talks about Michelangelo and the process that he went through to find the stone through which he would carve his most famous and his most flawless statue, the Statue of David, which many artists and art people think of as the, the greatest expression of, uh, of um, sculpture, particularly stone sculpture that has ever been created by man. In the book, Stone tells us that Michelangelo found that block of marble uh, out in a courtyard in a corner with weeds that were growing around it. And there were chips and markings in it as well. Apparently some other artist had chosen that block and began a work and then found it to be flawed or he messed up and so he threw it away, it was discarded, and blocks of marble that were already chipped and that already had somebody else's writing on it weren't used in art projects because it was a flawed piece of rock. But Michelangelo found this thing in the corner, he brought it back and he began to chisel at it and mark at it even though there were other markings. The previous was, uh, sculpture was going to carve a, a statue of Hercules. And Michelangelo, though, out of that rock, he formed David. Michelangelo is reported to have once answered an inquirer about how he created the masterpiece and said it really wasn't very difficult. All, uh, is, uh, all I did was chip away everything that wasn't David. And if you think about it, it's really not that difficult. It wasn't that difficult. All it took was creative genius and skill. Uh, uh, you know, any of us could have done it. Everybody would have seen the masterpiece in this thing over in the corner of the courtyard. And yet it's a beautiful picture of what God promises to do in those that he has called to himself. Because he says to us, Paul reminds us in Ephesians, we become God's workmanship. And the word for workmanship actually in Greek is the word poema. And so it would be appropriate for us to say we are God's poems. And we are not unlike that piece of rock that Michelangelo found. Because we are flawed when Jesus finds us. And some of us have felt discarded. But Jesus takes us and he turns us into a poem that brings him pleasure. He turns us into his masterpieces for whatever purposes he has. And he promises to us that the, what he has begun in us, he will see through to the end. And so we need to see in these guys, and looking at this passage, one of the foundational truths of the kingdom of God is that God does extraordinary things in very ordinary people, and that should be a comfort to pretty much all of us. But then a the thing that's amazing as well that we need to recognize is that God does extraordinary things through these ordinary people as well. Because these guys, and it's not so much recorded here, but again, this is the introduction to the entirety of the story. These guys, through their influence, we see the beginnings of it as they share the gospel with other people and invite their friends to become a part. These guys had an influence that began to grow as they would testify to the hope that they had found through learning more of Jesus and began to influence others. Other followers had come, an influence that grew through, through the years in multitudes of people, through geography and through the generations so that 2,000 years later the gospel that they had been seeking is now heard on the other sides of the world. It's reached people like you and me who otherwise wouldn't have heard it and even to the extent that one-third of the entire global population proclaims the name of Jesus Christ. Two billion people proclaim Christ out of a population of a world population of six billion. This is the influence of these insignificant guys 
because of the work that God was done in them. And we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus' interaction with them, at least as we see with Nathaniel, as he promises great things are going to happen through these ordinary people. When Nathaniel came and Jesus says, said, I, I see the Israelite, who, after that part of the conversation, Nathaniel's response was to say, you are the son of God. You, you are the king. So there was an act of worship. And Jesus' response to him is, look, you believe because I told you this. You're going to see greater things than this. What Jesus was saying to him is, look, you're impressed because I knew things and because I said things, but you will see even far more important things than this. And then he goes into the analogy of the heaven opening up, which is true for all who are believers, which kind of goes to the ultimate, but he also was telling them there are going to be greater things that they're going to be perceiving. One of the things we need to see from this exchange is this, is that Jesus is saying to him, look, you're impressed because I could say something, I could tell you something. But you're going to see more important. Jesus is not willing to be simply revered as a prophet who was able to reveal things from God and to tell people things about God. Part of the greater things that they would see is that Jesus, who had come not only to tell us about God, but to lay his own life down and take it up again, that is the awesome thing that they would see, is that a man died and then rose again by his own power in three days. Which is the hope that Jesus was promising that they also all believed. They would see incredible things, which was part of the transformation, their faith, and they were empowered, But we also need to remember that part of the greater things that Jesus said that they would see is wrapped up in the promise that Jesus gave them at the end of his ministry when Jesus said, not only will you see greater things than this, but those who are my disciples, you would do greater things than I have done. And these ordinary guys went out and did incredible things through which the gospel was able to reach the nations. It's an absolutely incredible story with absolutely vanilla beginnings. But as I was wrestling with this week, I began asking some questions to myself. As we consider these guys, these ones who had really nothing of great significance to offer the world, and yet who we're told after Pentecost turned the entire world upside down whose influence was so great that it transformed the most powerful nation on earth in the Roman Empire. How do we experience that kind of transformation? That we might become part of God's answer to the problems of the world rather than participants in the problems of the world. And it is a question that we are asking. If you're on social media at all, you know that it's a question people want to know. They may not be phrasing it that way, but but the extreme angst that everybody is engaging in, screaming about that the world is coming to an end of this candidate or the other candidate. The world's coming to an end, apparently, of either candidate that we have coming for president. And everybody's trying to exercise some sort of influence and, and change that so that the world doesn't come to the end, at least. I'm not really sure what we're trying to do. I just know that we're wrestling with that question. How can we make a difference rather than contribute to the problems of the world? We've been asked over the past couple of months if we will do a message on the upcoming election and encourage you on how you ought to think and process in that. And it was Camper who actually said it most beautifully and most succinctly. He said, we do it every week. 
because we point to you every single week that God has already put his king on Zion, and he's the one who's reigning, and he's the one who is still at work within us. And so it's that orientation that gives you hope and power and wisdom, and within that, then you exercise your conscience according to certain biblical principles. Whatever that comes out to, that is the message. You'll get two in one now uh, for today. But all of that is wrapped up with this question, how do we experience this kind of transforming power that we might be people who, although we're very ordinary, you know, irrelevant, how do we exercise that kind of influence? How do we step more fully into the only story that makes sense of human history and gives hope at the same time? And as I was looking at this passage, I realized that some of the answer is here. And since you asked, I would say that I'll begin with the question that Jesus begins with, with these first disciples. He asked, what are you seeking? And it's important we understand what he's asking, what he's not asking, because he's saying, what are you seeking? He didn't ask, what do you want? I know some of your translations say, what do you want? And what do you want is not entirely wrong, but it is an in- inadequate aspect, a way of asking the question. You know, we want a lot of things, don't we? I mean, I like sunny days, but what am I going to do to make one happen? If you'd asked me yesterday morning, I wanted the University of Tennessee to beat the University of Alabama. As Ben will tell you, it didn't happen. You know, I wanted those things. We all want world peace, and, you know, what do you want? It puts us all in the Miss America pageant, doesn't it? We just loft off these things, and we want them. But they're not necessarily reflective of which really on our heart. Some of them are good. Some of the wants are good. Some of them are realistic. Some of them are, are, are fleeting. Some of them we just have no control over. Jesus is not asking what he wants. There is a way in which we need to understand God's not particularly interested in our list of wants. He is interested in every aspect of our lives, but he's not interested in our list of wants. But Jesus asked, what are you seeking? And the difference between what do you want and what are you seeking is this. Ask yourself, where are you investing your life? What is it that you want that is out there somewhere so much that it moves you out of your comfort zone because you want that more than you want what you have? Therefore, you're willing to move out. What you seek is what you are pursuing. And we begin to understand what it is we're seeking when we ask ourselves questions like, what do I do with my free time? What do I do with my money? How do I view my circle of friends or my work or even my family? And what do I do in relationship to those? Because where we invest ourselves is the evidence of what we are seeking rather than just, well, this would be nice. I prefer this to that. I want those, but not enough to get up off the couch. I want world peace, but I will spend the day before going back to look, work on my message, watching a football game. Probably not going to contribute to world peace. It's what I want. That was what I wanted, not what I was seeking. And the reason this is a significant question is if we don't know what it is that we seek, then we find no value in anything that we find. And so Jesus is asking this question not because he didn't know, but because it was necessary that these guys know, why are you following me? What is it that you seek? 
You've taken the steps to actually come after me and leave your previous teacher. So what is it that you're seeking? What is it that you're valuing that you want to invest your life in? And we need to understand the answer to that question if we're going to have any transformation because only as we understand that then we see the promises of God in the person of Jesus Christ begin to blossom in our lives. After we're beginning to get clear on what we're seeking, and that's a question we need to be asking ourselves regularly and those kind of the primer questions for that. I think the second characteristic for transformation that we see out of this passage is this. It's spending time with Jesus. You might say, well, where do you see that? It's in the response that Andrew and John gave to Jesus when they, and he said, what are you seeking? They said, teacher, where, where are you staying? And I have to confess that, for the most part, I've often mocked that response because it almost seems like a, a non sequitur, doesn't it? What are you seeking? Well, where are you staying? It, it just doesn't seem to make any sense. And, and I took both delight and comfort in what appears to be the social awkwardness, saying, I'm not the only one that doesn't always know how to answer a simple question. Um, and so we're the only one that says stupid things in response to a, a, a simple question. And so I took great delight in that. But this week I began looking at this in a different way entirely. And it's quite possible that what was happening there is that when Jesus said, what are you seeking? They took that question seriously and it just hit them and they thought, hmm. And after a pause, instead of an immediate response, they said, where are you staying? And where are you staying could have significant implications for what they were thinking, because it's quite possible that that response is simply conveying in it. What I'm seeking is something that can't be answered in a 30-minute conversation on the side of the road, or in 60 minutes, once a week on Sunday mornings. What I'm seeking is not something that I can get out of some book or a seminar and even a mountaintop experience in a great retreat. What I'm seeking is far more transcendent than that. And so I want to go where you go. I want to be with you. Because if you are who John says you are, if you are the Lamb of God, the promised Messiah, in whom all of the truth of life I don't want just information and then you go away and I go my way. I don't even want just direction. I want constant access to you. I want to be with you. And we're told they went and they spent the entire day. They spent the time with him and then they followed him. They were always with him. And so one of the things that we need to see here is the difference between what we pass off as being a Christian in American culture and what the Bible teaches. Because we say, well... Here's the checklist. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? All things that are necessary for disciples. Okay, good. You've given intellectual assent to these things. Now, boom, you're a Christian. And that may be true. But Jesus didn't say, okay, let me give you the primer questions. Can you pass the theological exam before I let you in? Jesus says, follow me. Even the question statement, come and see, it's an invitation to enter into his life and to be with him and in fellowship with him. The difference between what we see and those who are powerless in evangelical culture today is a vast majority of people who believe the right things and will defend the right things, and very few people who are willing to walk with Jesus, spend time with Jesus in his word and prayer and just live with Jesus. That's the difference between being a believer and being a disciple, and Jesus calls disciples. The third thing that we see is this. 
before the influence comes. These other two things are essential for the transformation that takes place for God to do extraordinary things in us ordinary people. But then to work through us, we see this last thing is these guys loved other people enough to point them to Jesus. And we see the examples, and they're not particularly astounding. We see Andrew. First thing he does is he tells his brother. And so he uses his family and friendship network, and we see him just do it in a very simple way. We're not even told exactly how the conversation went down, but he didn't have any great opening lines. Have you heard the four spiritual laws? If you were to die tonight, where would you go? Well, then let me tell you. He just came and said, we found. Let me tell you what I found. And he brings them with us. We see the same thing in Philip to Nathaniel. And apparently Philip's not very bright, but he is an incredible example. He goes to Nathaniel and he points it out and, and he ignores the snarkiness and the cynicism that is in Nathaniel's voice. And when Nathaniel says, can anything good? He says, come and see. See, he doesn't debate him. He doesn't just say, hey, let me go take a class in apologetics so I have all the answers so that I will reason with him. He simply says, come and see and meet Jesus. And we can do the very same thing. We can invite people to say, this is important to me, I think it will be important to you, I know you have questions, and I know you have doubts, but come and let's see where he is and where, he, where, where he's at work. Now, some would say, well, that was easy for Philip because Jesus was like a mile away. And for us, Jesus has been dead or gone anyway for 2,000 years, but we as believers need to understand, Jesus is not dead, Jesus is alive, and he is at work, and he is present every place he says that he is going to be present, and he's going to have power in every place. That means any place, he tells us, where two or three believers are gathered together. That means in any relationship of two believers, whether it's husband and wife, or friendships, or neighbors, or golf partners, study buddies, it doesn't really matter. There's a difference in the nature of the relationship of those who have committed themselves to following Jesus in the gospel, and Jesus is evident and at work through that anytime we invite people to come and to see. See, we don't have to be great. These guys weren't. But we need to be faithful. Let me finish with this. This is how Schaefer begins his book, No Little People. It's wonderful to be a Christian, but I'm such a small person, so limited in talents or energy or psychological strength or knowledge, that what I do is really not important. Schaefer says, the Bible, however, has quite a different emphasis because with God, there are no little people. May he give us the grace to believe and to experience that truth. Let me pray. Father, we come to you and we give thanks to you and we bless you for this revelation. And I pray that this would serve as an encouragement and as a challenge to all of us who are here. May we seek you and your kingdom and your righteousness first above all things, knowing that everything else that we are prone to seek falls into its appropriate place after that. Lord, by your spirit be at work within us to compel us, to empower us, to encourage us by reminding us of the truth of your gospel, which is at the foundation of our hope. We might glorify you and love you and be with you.